So Mary and I got back from Atlanta yesterday. Uh, we were with Kevin and Lori and Blaine Hewitt at the Catalyst Conference in Atlanta, or nearby Atlanta. We were at the conference from Wednesday till, well, we flew back Saturday. The conference ended Friday morning. But thanks to the generosity of the elders and the Hewitts, it didn't really cost us anything. We are so, so grateful. Um, and when I was getting ready to leave, there's always so much to get prepared to go out of town, especially when you have two kids, right? So scrambling to get ready to leave, scrambling to get the message done on Tuesday so I didn't have to think about it while I was at the conference. And of course, it was not coming together. And I was like, Lord, <laughs> I don't want to have to think about this while I'm gone. Um, hearing a, uh, uh, Charles Stanley talk about, though, he had, he didn't have a message for Easter Sunday, and it didn't come to him until, like, it was either that Saturday night or Sunday morning. That's, like, my worst nightmare. <laughs> so, but I just said to God, like, you're going to have to bring clarity to this message. I just got a whole bunch of stuff, and it's not organized, and I don't even know if this is the direction you want me to head, and I, I don't know what to do with this, Right? And so he brought clarity to me. The first speaker, Andy Stanley, shared, and it was like such confirmation, like I was headed in the right direction. And then it wasn't just the first speaker that shared that confirmed it, but then the next speaker, and the next speaker, and the next speaker. And it was to the point where I'm sitting in my seat at this conference, and there's such fire in my bones, it was hard for me to sit still. Because God was just affirming so many things that I've been thinking over the last year, two years, three years, that it just, it was just so cool. So God is faithful. He's faithful to us every day. He gives us what we need when we need it. And I just want to remind you of that fact, because no doubt, I'm sure you guys sitting in this room right now are going through things that are just difficult, and you're waiting on God, and that waiting can be very difficult hard, but he is faithful to come through when, when you need him. And uh, he's working right now, even though if, it may not appear as if he's working right now in your life, he is working. He's always behind the scenes working and orchestrating things for the good of those who love him. And so I want to remind you of that. I am happy to, to head back into our Kingdom Fit sermon series uh, we're talking about kingdom living. We're talking about how we can uh, live alive to God and his rule and his reign in the midst of this world that is anything but alive to his rule and reign. We're learning how we can grow in surrendered obedience to Jesus because that's what the kingdom fit person does. More and more in an increasing measure they are, they are living in surrendered obedience to all that Jesus taught. Um, last Sunday, I was happy to have people on the stage to share about our life groups because th that's one of the main vehicles by which people can learn how to become kingdom fit and grow in kingdom fitness. And so I, I'm just so thankful for the Tyuses and uh, for... Who else was on stage? The Mutchlers and Eric and Rachel Robinette 
and Emily Moore, they just did such a fantastic job sharing how being a part of a life group has helped them in their journey um, as a Christian. I want to continue to plug these groups. If you have yet to plug into one of them, please try them all. We have seven of them. Try all seven of them. Find the one that works for you, right? Um, You can't live this Christian life alone. You can't be obedient to Jesus in isolation. There's no way you can practice the one another's. And there's a ton of one another's in the scriptures by yourself, right? So I want to encourage you with that. Um, Let me remind you where we've been in our Kingdom Fit sermon series. So one of the things we've talked about is what Kingdom Fitness is, and I've already said it. It's growing in surrendered obedience to all that Jesus taught. Not growing in knowledge of all that he taught. Growing in obedience to all that he taught. We are to be hearers and doers of his commands. We've also uh, talked about that if we're going to approach growth in kingdom fitness, and if we're going to approach it well, if we're going to train in it, there are some foundational truths that we have to keep in mind. And so we've covered those. Let me just mention them to you. Kingdom fitness is immensely valuable. It's immensely valuable. God has given us everything we need to become kingdom fit. We must put forth grace-empowered effort into growing in kingdom fitness, for it is God's grace that motivates our effort, sustains our effort, and frees our effort to fail. These are foundational truths that we have to hold on to tightly so that when we train with Jesus, we don't get all wonky with it. And we don't morph into some unhealthy ways of, of trying to uh, experience uh, spiritual growth. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the main components of a training program with Jesus in kingdom living. I want to talk about the, the essentials that need to be a part, I believe, need to be a part of every person's training program. The desire is that this will be practical for you. I'm trying to make this series as practical as possible. These components came to me with this this aha moment uh, that God gave me. Don't you just love aha moments where things that are so foggy just become clear? When you're just wrestling with something and struggling to understand it and it's so muddy and murky and God just all of a sudden like flips the switch and the light comes on and there's such relief, right? There's such peace, there's such satisfaction in knowing that you feel like you've got an answer to a problem or you have solved the mystery. And I don't have all the answers, but I have been thinking about discipleship for the last, well, ever since I became a pastor. Because I think the two most important questions that any pastor or church needs to answer are these. What's your plan for creating, what's your plan for increasing both the quality and quality of the disciples your church is producing? That's the first question. And secondly is, is the plan working? Those are the two questions. Let me pray, and then we'll check out the components of training with Jesus. (coughs) 
Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that you are in our midst. Thank you that your presence is with us. And that you have given us access to yourself through your life, your death, and your resurrection, and your exaltation. Thank you that when we don't even know what to pray, your spirit is interceding for us. Lord, I pray as we look at these components of training with you, that you would bring us clarity. And that we would desire it, and that we would go after it with all of our heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here are the components. Are you ready? I want to give you a thousand foot view and then we'll look at two of the components in more detail. The first one is vision. The second component is commitment. The third component component is assessment, plan, evaluation. So that's the thousand foot view. Let me give you just a few details so that you can grasp the thousand foot view. And then I want to look at vision and com commitment in more detail. Vision. Perhaps you've heard the saying, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. Have you heard that saying? Meaning, if you don't have a target in mind, how on earth are you going to hit it? If you don't have the destination in mind, how are you going to organize your steps to get there? We have to know what we're aiming at. Training with Jesus is no different, right? You have to know what you're aiming at if you're going to hit the target. More on this a bit, in a bit. Second is commitment. If we're going to become the vision, we have to do whatever it takes to get to the target, to arrive at the destination, to hit that target, to pierce that target. There are no quick fixes when it comes to spiritual growth. There just isn't. And I know that that is hard for us. Uh, one of the things that was mentioned at the conference is, uh, and one of the things I've thought about is we live in an Amazon Prime world, right? I get frustrated if my package isn't there in two days. Like, it's like, what on earth? How could they? Right? Like, you expect it now. Spiritual growth is not that way. It takes time, both quality and quantity of time. There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. It will take energy. It will even take money. Here's the thing. In Christ, we are no longer uh, sinners, right? We are saints that still occasionally sin. Um, and we need to grow into our new identity in Christ. We need to grow so that our life is, falls more in alignment with our new nature and our new heart, and that takes commitment. More on this in, in a minute, too. The next part is assessment. So once you see the vision and once you're committed to the process of training with Jesus, you have to ask yourself, all right, where am I weak? Where do I fall short? Where is God desiring to grow me right now in this season of my life? You've got to discern that with the Spirit, with God's help, of course. And then number four, you need to have a plan. There's that uh, saying, and I think it's true of the spiritual life too, without a plan. Wait, those who fail to plan, plan to fail, I think is how it goes. 
Um, God, thankfully, he is so gracious to us that even when we are haphazardly walking the Christian life, he can still allow growth to happen, and that just speaks to his grace. But I really believe that in order for us to experience substantial growth, we need to have a plan. We need to be intentional in our efforts. Dallas Willard says there are two, and I agree with him wholeheartedly with these, there are two primary objectives that our plan has to address. The first is to bring us to the point where we dearly love and constantly delight in that heavenly Father made real to earth in Jesus and are quite certain that there is no catch, no limit to his goodness or to the goodness of his intentions or to his power to carry them out. That's the first objective that our plan must address. Simultaneously, the plan that we create with the Lord needs to address removing our automatic responses against the kingdom of God. Those old habitual patterns of thought, feeling, and action. You see, your body, your mind, right now is poised to sin. It's because you have developed habits and you've acquired habits of thinking and behaving that when the pressure's on, you naturally respond in ways that are out of alignment with the kingdom. You need to, your, your mind and your body need to be retrained. And so that's another aspect, that's the second objective that simultaneously needs to be addressed with the plan. In the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about the plan specifically in those two objectives. And then the fifth component is evaluation. Is your plan working? All right? If it's not working, then you need to start something, you need to stop something, or you need to tweak something, right? Doing the same things, expecting different results is the definition of what? Right. Spiritual life is no different. And guess what? What one person's plan is may not be the plan for you. And that's important to keep in mind. This is how we train with Jesus. This is how we work out our faith with fear and trembling. This is how we grow um, in kingdom living. So let me zero in on the vision component and the commitment component with the rest of our time. Because these components are so essential. Vision. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. But, that, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. In other words, if we don't know what God's law is, we can't keep it. And if we can't keep the law, and if we don't keep the, the law, there won't just be nothing that happens. And we won't just go into a neutral state where there is no good or bad happening in our life. This verse makes it clear that there will be a loss that is deadly. You see, God's laws help us to understand how life was meant to be lived. They help us to understand how humans flourish. They help us understand how we can live in abundant, abundant ways that bring abundant life. And so it's so important that we understand his laws. They are the vision of what life is meant to be like and how it's meant to be lived. 
That's why you have things in the Psalms that's, that say things like this, Psalm 119, 15, and 16. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In fact, the book of Psalms starts out with, and we've read this recently here at our church, Psalms 1, Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. What kind of life will this meditation produce? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of the water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And that is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right, where, we've, where we really learn what the vision is in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this in Matthew five seventeen through 20, Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus went on then in the Sermon on the Mount, you may recall, to explain how the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, had gotten God's law wrong. They had gotten it all wrong. They missed that all of God's law was about love. Love for God, love for oneself, and love for other people. And then with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus outlined what that love looks like in daily life. What love for God, love for oneself, and love for others looks like in daily life. That's what he spent the rest of the Sermon of the Mount teaching. You see, this is the vision. What Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and what really the rest of the New Testament writers riff on, really, that's what they're doing, is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we're shooting for. This is our target. This is the destination that has been clearly defined by us, by Jesus. What I find sad is that I think many Christians don't know what the vision of the Christian life is. They don't know what it is. If you were to ask them, they may be able to answer with love, but I don't think that a lot of them can go beyond that. They can't outline for you what's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Can you? Can you tell me what's been taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you have that in your brain and your heart? Is this the law that you're meditating on day and night? This has to be so firmly planted in our hearts if we're ever going to live lives that reflect it. We've got to know the target. And so I ask you, let or I, I challenge you to know the Sermon on the Mount. Keep it in the forefront of your minds. Do whatever it takes to regularly circle back 
to what Jesus taught there. I also encourage you to meditate on 1 Corinthians 13. Because it's probably the best piece of writing that we have in regards to really just giving a definition of love. And what love looks like in daily practice. So that's the vision part. That's what we're aiming at. That we would grow in surrendered obedience to the vision that Jesus outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that I really like about our Thrive class is it's helping us to do that. We are focused on how Jesus loved people. And guess what uh, the author of the study is doing? He's referring us back to what? The Sermon on the Mount. Because that's the vision. Commitment. The second component is commitment. If we're going to train with Jesus, what level of, of commitment does it require? If we're really going to see Substantial growth and kingdom living. What kind of commitment does Jesus ask of us? Let's look at some of Jesus' words. Luke 14, 26 through 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, The man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Matthew 6.33, some other words of Jesus. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6, 24. No one can have two masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and. And you can fill in the blank. What level of commitment is Jesus requiring to train with him to be his disciple? Total commitment. (laughs) This was part of my wrestling before I was leaving for this conference. It's like, God, this is so harsh. This is so challenging. And one of the things you wrestle with as a preacher is, Challenge and support. You don't want to just beat people up when you preach. But I can't get around this. I can't take the barbs out of it. I can't soften this. I just can't. And there's for sure one thing I'm not going to do is bend the scripture to meet what, whatever, you know. So, Jesus is calling for supreme allegiance, ultimate devotion. What Jesus is saying here is that discipleship has to be your life. 
It has to be your life. Training with Jesus, it has to be your life. It can't be an add-on. You can't be a disciple of Jesus, but also trying to serve other masters simultaneously. It does not work. When I think of discipleship to Jesus and training with him, I think of a professional athlete. I think of somebody like Tom Brady. If you've ever read about his training program, uh, he's a quarterback for the New England Patriots. I don't think anybody really argues anymore, the greatest football player that has ever played, for sure the greatest quarterback ever. His training program is intense. His whole life is arranged and planned around being the best possible athlete he can be year to year. His family life, how he spends his money, what he eats, when he sleeps, when he wakes up, where he lives. It is all determined by that goal. Even his wife has said something to the effect I've just had to learn, basically, that football is his first love. That would be hard as a wife, right? I'm not endorsing that. But this is the sort of intensity we have to have with Jesus, and that's what he is calling for. We, are all, we offer our body as a living sacrifice to the goal of growing in surrendered obedience to all that he taught. See, I think people have been duped into believing. They've been duped into, uh, duped into believing that you can have Jesus as your Savior but not have him as your Lord. I think the gospel that has unfortunately been preached is that you get Jesus for his blood. Dallas Willard, he coined the term vampire Christians. People that just want Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And so that they can go to heaven sometime, you know, when they eventually die. That is a part of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. When we commit to Christ, yes, we're saying that we are sinful and we need his forgiveness and we're trusting that on the cross he took care of our sin problem. But we're also committing to a life that is surrendered to his lordship. We're going from a life that used to say my way, my will, my time, and we're exchanging that for a life of your will, your way, your time. We're putting every facet of our life on the table, and we're saying to Jesus, it is all yours. And I don't even know what it looks like to seek your kingdom first in these areas, but I am committed to learning how. I am yours. That's the gospel. And as we submit ourselves to him as our Savior and also our Lord, then we start to experience eternal life now. We don't just kind of hang out on the sidelines until we die. I wonder what gospel was preached to you. The gospel is good news, not for life after death, but life before death as well. We cannot be legit Christians. We can't just have 
Jesus as Savior if we're not willing to have him as Lord as well. And that is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Die to being the king of your life. Die to calling the shots. He leads, we follow. And all of our life becomes organized and arranged around this pursuit. He may call us to leave our family. He did the first disciples. He may call us to leave our jobs. He did the first disciples. He may call us to the jungles of Africa. He has done this and continues to do it. But most often he doesn't. You know what he calls us to? Typically what he calls us Christians to is to see our life differently. To see our lives through the lens of discipleship. And, this is, and what this means in practical terms is that we're asking the question, how do I seek the kingdom first in every dimension of my life? How do I seek the kingdom first in my marriage? What does that look like? How do I seek the kingdom first in my work? How would Jesus approach it if he were me? We have coaches in the room. How do I seek the kingdom first in my coaching? How do I submit to his will, his way, his time with these players that are under my tutelage? Right? In our, in, in our finances, what does it look like for us to seek first the kingdom in our finances? In our parenting, what does it look like to seek our kingdom, seek God's, not ours, seek God's kingdom first in our parenting? You see, when you become a disciple of Jesus, your life may not look, in terms of what you're doing, may not look a whole different. But why you do it and how you do it will definitely change. You're you're thinking from all my life is about discipleship to Jesus. That is what it means to seek the kingdom first. That is my top priority. Everything else is subservient to that. This is what Jesus is asking us to commit to. Andy Stanley, he said something really cool. He said that priority determines capacity. Here's the thing. I'll tell you why, and I'll close with this, and we'll be done. I'll tell you why Jesus' radical command of this radical commitment that he was asking for is not harsh and unloving and is not void of, of compassion. You know why it's not? Because Jesus knows, because he is love, he knows That if anything is on the throne of our heart other than him in his kingdom, life is not going to work very well for us. He knows that if our parents are on the throne of our hearts or our children or our spouse and we're trying to find our satisfaction and significance and security in them, we will crush them. Because we are asking from them something that only God is able to give. Make your children your idol, you will crush them, and they will learn to resent you. You will smother them. And they're not going to want to be around you when they're 20 years old and don't have to be around you. Because when they failed, you failed. Right? 
Your identity was so wrapped up in them. Jesus knows this. And so it's the upside down way of the kingdom. He says, look, if you want to be a great parent, (laughs) don't make that your top priority. Make seeking the kingdom first your top priority. And then your capacity to be a parent will enlarge. And you'll actually love and parent them well. You want to have a great marriage? Don't make it your top priority. Yeah, I'm saying that for real. Don't make it your top priority. Seek first the kingdom. Then you'll be given the capacity to love your spouse well. It's the upside down way of the kingdom. This is not a harsh command. Jesus, you know what would be harsh is if Jesus didn't tell us this. If he withheld information that would lead to abundant life and he knew it and withheld it and didn't shoot us straight, that would be unloving. That would lack mercy. Jesus loves you so, so much. Look, the reason I pastor here is because, and I'll tell you what, I'm laboring with all my might. I want to present you mature and complete in Christ. When I stand before Christ and I have to give an account, I want to say to him, Lord, I tried my best to partner with you to see every person in our church live the abundant life that comes by seeking you and your kingdom first. That's why I do this. And that's why I'll continue to do it until he tells me to do something else. This is my desire for you. This is what I labor and toil for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We say this all the time. Uh, Because it's true and we need to be reminded of it. You love us just the way you are. Just the way we are, I should say. But you love us too much to let us stay the way we are. Lord, you want to give us the good life. And it's not a life void of suffering and pain and difficulty. We know that. But it's a life of joy and strength and power and fruitfulness even in the midst of life's storms. Lord, my desire is your desire, and it's the same desire that the Apostle Paul had for the people that he was working with, is that these people here, these individuals that you so love and went to the cross for and conquered death in the grave for and have poured out your spirit on those who are willing to receive it, your desire is that they would experience maturity and completeness in you, Because you know that true joy and happiness is on the far side of it. And so, Lord, I pray that as we continue to progress in thinking about how we can train with you to see that happen, that you would bring clarity, you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there's any person here today that was like, oh my goodness, I've never heard this before. I didn't know that becoming a Christian wasn't just about forgiveness of sin so I can go to heaven when I, die, when I die someday. That it's actually a call to radical 
discipleship now so that I can start to experience the eternal life now that Jesus, you came to give. I pray that if there's a person that is sitting here and is just now discovering that, Lord, that they would put a stake in the ground today and that they would say, I am yours, Lord. I want to seek your kingdom first in every single area of my life. I don't know what that looks like now exactly, but I'm willing to learn. Here I am. I pray that that would be their prayer. And Lord, I pray that if there are individuals here that at one point made that commitment, but yet the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the things you talk about have gotten them off a track, Lord, that you would bring them back to that path. Lord, may we be fruitful. May we see in the next couple years, Lord, I am praying, I am asking that you would allow a great increase in the quality and the quantity of disciples produced here in this church for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.